You are listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 10th of February 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. It's huge. I mean, it, it really is quite dramatic. For Sinn Féin to have broken through as an outsider and actually come out with more first-choice votes than either of the other parties is quite extraordinary. A shock result threatens to unsettle a decades-long political status quo in the Republic of Ireland. My guests Terry Stiasny and Quentin Peel will discuss that and the day's other news, including Angela Merkel's successor stands down in Germany and a dark and stormy flight, how airlines cope in gale force winds, plus... London is already renowned for its museums, but this week we'll see a novel addition to its cultural scene. The Migration Museum is the first place in the UK dedicated to exploring how the movement of people, both to and from the country, has helped shape it over the centuries. A new museum in London that offers a fresh take on the UK's past. I am Marcus Hippi. Monaco's House View starts now. Welcome to the programme. I'm joined today by Quentin Peel, the former Berlin correspondent for the Financial Times, and by the political journalist and author Terry Stiasny. Irish nationalists Sinn Féin have won more votes than any other party in the country's general election. The result is a huge blow to Ireland centrists. But it is thought Sinn Féin will struggle to form a government. Quentin, could you first put all this in perspective? How big of a change is this for the Republic of Ireland's politics? It's huge. I mean, it really is quite dramatic because the two-party well, two-party exchange between Fine Fáil and Fine Gael has been running the country ever since independence 100 years ago. So for Sinn Féin to have broken through as an outsider and actually come out with more first-choice votes than either of the other parties is quite extraordinary. So that's one thing. The second thing about it is it's shown the country very divided because the Sinn Féin votes were overwhelmingly picked up from the younger voters. Under 35, they got disproportionately more, whereas the older voters all went with the older parties. So there's a division down the country. And thirdly, who's going to be able to form a government? Because there are huge differences between Sinn Féin and the other parties. There are many, many questions and we have to wait for the answers. But Terry, what is your impression? Why did Sinn Féin do so well? What has changed? What are the factors? I think partly it's a sense that the other two main parties are in a sort of a central consensus that not much has shifted between them, you know, whoever is in government. Uh, And I think one of the main issues that came up, certainly domestically in Ireland, is the housing crisis. There's a sense that... You know, the price, house prices rose so fast, so quickly, and despite uh, the economic crash later on, when some of them fell back again, that it's still very hard for, particularly for young people in Ireland, to get on the housing market. There are also issues about healthcare, and Sinn Féin came along as a as a different voice, promising that they would be able to do things differently. And I think there's a there has been a concern, particularly among younger people, that finding jobs, finding housing, getting decent healthcare uh, is is one of the things that they're worried about. 
Quentin, would you add something to that? Well, I mean, that's it. They, the Sinn Féin have fought a very sensible and clever campaign in picking on those issues which people were most concerned about. They even went a little bit for the old grey vote at the end by picking up on the pension issue and so on. So they, they, they fought a clever campaign. What they didn't fight on, but is core to them, of course, is Irish unification. They just put that sort of quietly to one side. But having said that... Irish unification is absolutely core to what they stand for. And if they were to come into a coalition government now, that would be a very interesting shift of emphasis. So how much does this have to do with Brexit then? It doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, at one level it doesn't, because this was basically exactly as Terry said, On this was domestic issues. Having said that, I was listening to one of the Sinn Féin successful candidates this morning and he said, but Brexit changed everything. It was a real shift in, uh, in the entire sort of political background to Ireland and it made it possible for the first time to vote for a party that was a nationalist party in favour of unification precisely because the Brits had gone and done the same. They'd gone and voted for a nationalist solution and in a way they'd betrayed the unionists in Northern Ireland with the Brexit deal that Boris Johnson had done. So it was wide open. Now, we should remember that we're talking about a party that has historic links to extreme violence on the island of Ireland. Terry, what does that mean in 2020 after that election result we have now seen? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the days of violence are long since gone. And if you look at Northern Ireland in particular, where Sinn Féin have worked together with the DUP uh, installment, obviously that had been suspended for a while. They're now coming back into government. You know, they are, they have been a party of government in the North, certainly for a very long time now. And I think certainly, as Quentin said, although Brexit might not have been at the origin of many people's votes for Sinn Féin, it certainly once we get a government, once we get discussions about a coalition, it will influence what happens going onwards because one of you know the big outstanding issues that needs to have some form of solution before the end of the year is what is the status of Northern Ireland with regards to the rest of Britain in terms of trade, in terms of what kind of relationship they have. And with a different government in place in in the republic that is going to influence the discussions that go on um, between between Britain and Ireland so depending on you know it's unlikely at the moment the other parties are saying they don't want to go into coalition with Sinn Féin we don't know how that is going to play out whether there might be another election but whoever comes to power will have to take you know t- take different views into account so it may you know make those kind of discussions different how realistic and how responsible have the election promises of Sinn Féin been? Quentin, are people right to call that party a populist movement? Well, yes, to up to an extent. They're, they're a nationalist populist movement. Don't, their nationalism is their core. Are they a left-wing populist movement? Also to an extent. But they've been quite clever in not really having to show their hand on quite a lot of issues. So, you know, what's their stance on immigration? or what's their stance on gay rights? Well, the truth is, those deals haven't been central, so they've been pushed to one side. Um, So I think they're a populist party. I think the most likely outcome, and now I'm really sticking my neck out, Mm -hmm. is probably a coalition between Fianna and Sinn Féin, but it will be very difficult to make it work. The sort of policies that Sinn Féin have been pushing have been to get rid of the very low 
the corporate taxation in Ireland and to actually increase that. Now, that's something that will please Paris and, and Berlin very much, but it won't please the traditionalists in Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael who've lived on that low tax rate to encourage uh, investment to come to Ireland. So what's going to happen to investment coming to Ireland? Prime Minister Leo Varadkar has again and again ruled out forming a coalition. What do you think? Is he going to be showing some flexibility about that? I don't think he will. I think the man who might show flexibility is Mihol Martin, the leader of Finna Foyle, and he's been quite careful over the weekend not to commit himself. Leo Varadkar, I think, representing a economically conservative party would find it incredibly difficult to govern with Sinn Féin. I, mean, I think his own position is very, very weak at the moment. I mean, he only won his own seat in his own constituency on the fifth count uh, of the vote. So, you know, whether he stays as the party leader, you know, his his own future is certainly in question. So whether he's the person that ends up negotiating this either is, uh, is also, you know, up for grabs. Well, if we see a coalition including Sinn Féin, how much more difficult will that be to deal with for Boris Johnson compared to the current setup we see in Ireland? I think it will make clearly more difficult issues. It means that Boris Johnson will actually have to learn a bit about Irish politics. He'll actually have to pay attention, which I don't think he's done up till now. But of course, what he's done in agreeing the withdrawal agreement is do a deal that everybody was reasonably happy with in Ireland, because it does mean that that inner Irish border won't come back. And so that's been pushed to one side. I think now the British are going to find it very difficult to sit down and talk to a government that includes uh, people who they will see as having been supporters of the IRA. That, I think, is going to make it, in personal chemistry, very difficult. And just finally, before we move on, Terry, President of Sinn Féin, Marie-Louis MacDonald, has called for a referendum on Irish independence. What do you think? Is this looking increasingly likely? Uh, a referendum on on Northern Irish independence. Uh, I mean, I think it, again, it depends what role, if any, that she has uh, to play in the government. It depends on how um, how the Stormont Assembly plays out. I mean, it is yet another potential problem further down the line. Looking at you've got Scotland already uh, talking about wanting a, a further independence referendum. It's another. It's going to be another issue for Boris Johnson. How do you keep the union together when you've got such different views, particularly on on Brexit in different parts of the United Kingdom. Quentin Peel and Terry Stiasny there will be back in just a moment, but first here is Monaco's Augustin Machulari with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thanks, Marcus. More than 900 people are now known to have died following the outbreak of coronavirus in China. Over the weekend, the number of deaths caused by the virus overtook that of the SARS epidemic in 2003, which also originated in China and killed 774 people worldwide. Irish nationalist Sinn Féin have won more votes than any other party in the country's general election. The left-wing group's hierarchy has described the result as a revolution in the ballot box. The result is a huge blow to Ireland's centrists, but it's thought Sinn Féin will struggle to form a government. Today's Monocle Minute reports that Canada is launching a design competition to reimagine one of the most prominent sites in the country, an entire city block opposite Ottawa's Parliament buildings. The 11 buildings are in need of major renovations. For more on this story, head to monocle.com slash minute. And finally, the South Korean film Parasite has been named the best picture at this year's Oscars. It means that it becomes the first non-English language film to scoop the prize. 
Renee Zellweger won Best Actress for playing Judy Garland in Judy, and Joaquin Phoenix was named the Best Actor for his role in Joker. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Augustine. This is Monaco's Houseview. I am Marcus Hippi, here with Terry Stiasny and Quentin Peel. Let's continue to Germany, where Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, the leader of the CDU party, has announced she is stepping down from her post and that she won't run for Chancellor in next year's election. Earlier, it was widely expected that she would be following Angela Merkel's footsteps. Quentin, how big of a surprise is this? It is and it isn't. I think that it was inevitable that she was probably going to pull out of the race in the next coming months because she was just looking weaker and weaker in her position. Her popularity ratings had been falling steadily. And what's happened most recently, of course, is that she's just been shown not to have the capacity to discipline the party and hold the line because her party in the state of Thuringia had actually gone and voted with the AFD to put an alternative government in power there of the Liberals. So she was looking pretty weak, but I'm still pretty amazed that she's gone now because it leaves the race to be the CDU leader and the CDU candidate for Chancellor wide open. And that means that German politics is going to go through a prolonged period of drift. So what went wrong? Why was she struggling with authority? I suppose the the really difficult thing is whoever comes next after Angela Merkel has such big shoes to fill. She has stood over German politics for such a long time that whoever is the next leader, it's like when a new football manager comes in. Everybody always says that they were worse than the last one, even if everybody hated the last one and wanted to get rid of them at the time. You know, she has got big boots to fill. She is possibly wasn't everybody's first choice for leader. She narrowly won the leadership and she just hasn't managed to impose herself as a character and to, to fill that space, I think. And she also, comes from a very small state. She doesn't yeah, have Saarland, yeah. many troops, if you like, on the ground. And so although I think that in character, she was always described as mini Merkel, rather similar to Merkel, the truth is the party wanted a change, I think, from Merkel. So she never got the real support she wanted needed. Exactly. I was just going to ask about that, actually. She was considered to have been handpicked by Angela Merkel as a successor. That didn't work for her. AKK's benefit did it. No, I don't think it did. And that's the real question now about who's going to get the succession. Is it going to be, if you like, a pro-Merkel or an anti-Merkel person? And second, absolutely fundamental question, is it going to be a person who shifts the party to the right to try and head off the growth of the Alternative für Deutschland, this much further right party that has grown, particularly in East Germany? So that's the question that the leadership race now will have to determine. Yeah, I think Quentin touched on it there. One of the things it shows us is still how very regional German politics is. I mean, if you look at, you know, Thuringen, Thuringia in the Old East, where the politics is quite polarised between the, the very left-wing party, Die Linke, and uh, and the far right, the AFD. And then you've got Annegret Karrenbauer, who comes from Saarland, which is in the West, which is on the French border. She's always been someone looking more towards the West. And Angela Merkel, as somebody from the former East, was has been able to sort of bring the country together a bit more. But then... 
you you do have to look at people's power bases and where they are in the country and which part of the country they represent. And that's always quite a difficult balance within Germany. And the system is set up that way to give the regional governments quite a lot of power. So I'm going to put my money on the successor actually being Armin Laschet, the Prime Minister of North Rhine-Westphalia, the most populous state in the country, who's won an election, he's shown he can do it, and suddenly he's played his cards very carefully. And he won't be seen as an anti-Merkel candidate, but he will be different. You mentioned what happened in Thuringia last week, what we saw there shattered a political taboo in Germany where mainstream parties have vowed never to work with the anti-Islam, anti-immigrant party. If we look at these things more widely, can we see that as symptomatic of a wider willingness amongst EU centrist parties to deal with the far right? For example, how it seems that Emmanuel Macron is, is, is trying to seem a bit friendlier with the Polish leaders, for example. Well, I think that they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to play their cards. I mean, Macron, at one level, has got a very real threat from the far right in France with the Front National and Marine Le Pen. So he's, he's still very much a man of the centre, but he's also got to show that he can deal with autocrats and others. He's not just, uh, you know, going to spurn them. And I think there, funnily enough, you have the dilemma that has been both the case for Merkel and the CDU in Germany and for the traditional parties we were talking about in Ireland with Sinn Féin. They have ostracized these outer parties, these more extreme parties, said we cannot deal with them under any circumstances. Somehow they're going to have to learn to do that. So in East Germany, you've got not just the AFD on the right, but you've got the linker on the left. And suddenly the traditional parties were squeezed in the middle and they couldn't get a majority without dealing with one or the other. And considering the announcement we've got from AKK, what do you think that is going to do for the party and its popularity? Do you think this is damaging? Well, I think, you know, over the next few weeks, there's going to be sort of a lot of jostling for position. And you've seen that it's already started between uh, the different candidates, including uh, Armin Laschet, who, who Quentin just mentioned, uh, Jens Spahn, and there's, you know, Friedrich Merz, who sort of talking about coming back from his job in high finance, which possibly isn't the isn't the approach that people want, particularly when you're trying to deal with <laughs> sort of populists. You know, that that is uh, not necessarily the best place to be starting from. So I think, you know, there will be a lot of kind of inner Berlin. I saw it in one German newspaper article talking about the the Berlin shark tank and how mm. people trying to survive in the Berlin shark tank uh, so that will be a focus but you know more broadly they've got to look ahead to the next elections and to trying to you know work out who is in a winning position potentially for that and you know but then again the SPD is still also suffering the, the centre-left party they're not doing well either they're sort of having difficulties over you know and you look where they came in in the Thuringia elections they they were on eight mm. percent which is you know it's absolutely disastrously yeah. low. So, you know, the CDU is relatively in, in a reasonably strong position, particularly given they've been in power for so long. What do you think Angela Merkel is thinking about all this, by the way? <laughs> I suspect that at one level she's thinking, oh, God, I just want to get away from this and get out of it all. Then in the back of my mind, I can see, oh, my God, perhaps she, somebody's going to come to her and say, please stay, we can't <laughs> let you go. But I think that she actually is pretty keen to go. Don't lose sight of one other party in this whole thing, the party that's really rising fastest in Germany, the Greens. Mm -hmm. Robert Habeck, the leader, co-leader of the Greens, was in London last week, got huge 
huge support and applause from the audience at the London School of Economics that he was talking to. They see him as the future. And finally, a very big storm caused disruption to the UK yesterday, interrupting transport infrastructure, flooding homes and disrupting travel plans. It wasn't all bad, though, as one pilot was able to set a new transatlantic subsonic record, flying his British Airways flight into Heathrow in just four hours and 56 minutes. For others, it wasn't such a boon. Here is Monaco's own Daniel Bage on his horror flight back from Zurich. What looked to be a routine flight was made ever more interesting when the pilot, even before we'd boarded the plane, came on the PA system at Zurich Airport uh, to make a little announcement, which is always curious. And he apologized for everyone that wouldn't be having their baggage put onto the plane because we were told we were going to have to take multiple passes at landing at Heathrow. Even before we took off, they knew it was going to be bumpy, windy, and very rocky. In the end, three passes at Heathrow with no landing, just a lot of white knuckling and a lot of very nervous passengers. I was in row 10, almost sick and uh, certainly white as a ghost. We decided then to go to Manchester, but then they said, well, actually, the weather's now better back around Heathrow. So let's have another go at it. And with nerves of steel, I cannot believe in that wind with the plane being rocked all around. He actually made this landing, but he nailed it to a huge round of applause from some very relieved passengers. Monocle's own Daniel Page had the worst flight of his life yesterday. Terry and Quentin, I wonder, do you have any comparable experiences? Oh, my mo- I think the worst, I mean, I'm, I've, I'm a good flyer normally, but in those circumstances, even just listening to Daniel's experience made me feel a little bit queasy. Worst one was pretty extreme, uh, flying a, in a small plane. Uh, we had taken off from Kigali in Rwanda. We were about going to Goma in Democratic Republic of Congo, where there was a volcano erupting. Um, because I was with TV colleagues, they wanted to get some pictures <laughs> of, the coli- of the volcano erupting. So we had to fly in a very small plane around the crater of the volcano several times in order to get the shot and obviously because the hot air was coming up the plane bounced up and down over the volcano crater I I didn't see any of it because I was in the back of the plane being sick I'm afraid What about you Quentin? (laughs) Terry I think the more you fly the less you like it I think my most terrifying experiences were probably uh, in the former Soviet Union flying with beloved Aeroflot or indeed once with a Soviet military plane we flew back flying back from the Afghan border and as we were coming into London and they got us all to leave our seats strap hanging down the side of the plane and shuffle more and more forwards to the front of the plane. And we were all thinking, what on earth is going on? And we had to literally, practically 20 of us, cram into the cockpit to land. And I thought, has the wheel fallen off at the back or what are we doing? So I must admit, I was very nervous, but we did get down. Do you think these kind of stories and what we saw happen yesterday work as a good advert for trains? Uh, yes, probably. <laughs> I think, yeah. yeah. But then, you know, trains have had just as many problems. Uh, look at Euston Station, completely full of people, trees coming down on the lines. Not as dramatic and bumpy, but they still have Yeah, problems. you don't have sort of four goes at getting into King's no, Cross Station. You just sit outside for <laughs> a long time. Terry Stiasny and Quentin Peel, thank you very much. In a moment, why a new museum in a shopping centre offers the UK a chance to take stock. You are listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monaco's House View. I am Marcus Hippi. Finally today, a new museum of migration hopes to shine a light on the UK's multi-ethnic past.
London is already renowned for its museums, but this week we'll see a novel addition to its cultural scene. Opening on the 14th of February, the Migration Museum is the first place in the UK dedicated to exploring how the movement of people, both to and from the country, has helped shape it over the centuries. With the UK seeking to redefine its place in the world and its relationships with neighbours near and far, it couldn't be more timely. Exhibitions planned for this year include Room to Breathe, which will bring to life the lives of migrants coming here, and Departures, which will look at 400 years of immigration stories to coincide with the anniversary of the Mayflower setting sail to North America. As debates grow over who should be allowed to come here and who should be kept out, it's useful to remember that migration is an essential part of human history. There's another interesting aspect to the Migration Museum. It's in South London's busy Lewisham shopping centre. It's an unusual choice, but a considered one. The museum's director, Sophie Henderson, says it's all about being accessible, breaking down barriers and reaching wider audiences. It's also a smart move from the perspective of the shopping centre. As high street retailers and malls increasingly struggle, a genuine cultural attraction might be just a ticket to get more people moving in their direction. That was the view from the editorial floor, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augusti Machilari and researched by Nicholas Toomey. Our studio managers were Steph Jung and Jack Dewars. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That is at 1800 London time, 10 a.m. in Los Angeles. I am Marcus Hippie. Goodbye.